if there's something you want to do, then try it and make other people tell you you can't. Like literally the worst that happens is you don't get it and you're exactly where you were if you didn't try in the first place. Rocks are pretty cool and can tell us a lot about our environments. Today, I'm joined by Mika McKinnon, a geophysicist, natural disaster researcher, and sci-fi science consultant. For more conversations like this, you can join me live at twitch.tv slash Bela. Earth is our home. So let's talk about it. Okay, well, so first off, I'm so freaking excited. <laughs> like my friend um, Will a while ago was like, there's this person on Twitter, I think you would really like following her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so awesome. So um, like super duper thank you for like, you know, taking my invite to like come on to my podcast and um, my stream. So it's really awesome. <laughs> I am, I always have fun talking about geoscience and the fact that we also get to do geoscience and video games. Mm -hmm. And I, I did just enough like stalking of your feed to find out you play Don't Starve Together. Yes. Like the <laughs> ultimate resource games for the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Very cheerful, cartoony doom. So yeah. <laughs> my Monday night is sorted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Don't Starve Together is so much fun. Um, and it's so hard to try to play it with like, okay, I'm not going to go and like completely destroy everything. And then you're like, oh crap, I just burnt down everything on accident. <laughs> like Oh, the number of forest fires that I've started is is ridiculous, and I have to turn off notifications on here so it doesn't pop up the entire time. Come on, do not disturb mode. There we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I um, should probably make sure all my, let's see, is my stuff, okay, I retweeted yours. It should be good. It was, it was okay. a very articulate tweet, very articulate advertising tweet. Oh, yeah, I loved the Breath of the Wild guy. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> all right. Like, who needs a plot when you can do field work? Like, for reals, though. Like, oh. um, my only... So my ex field work experience was with civil engineering internship. Um, and that was fascinating, like, going and doing manometer surveys and um, also, like, some soil sampling. That was so much fun. But, um, yeah. So if you'd like to introduce yourself to the world of Twitch and what you do, like, your job... Things you All like. Right. <laughs> so I am Mika McKinnon. I am a field geophysicist, disaster researcher, and sci-fi science consultant, which I swear is a real job. <laughs> it's kind of like being a freelance scientist, which they, they never tell you is a career path, but turns out it is. Jazz hands. Uh, wow. So what I do is I write and communicate about science to pretty much any audience from technical policy things all the way through to mass media, pop culture events, anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, with the sci-fi work, I work in books, video games, TV, movies, whatever. I help content creators come up with more plausible stories, which is super fun That's because so I cool. actively fangirl out all yeah. the time. Um, as a geophysicist, that's like a mix of James Bond villain and MacGyver in that you go fly around in a helicopter, land somewhere remote, pull out all of your delicate, sensitive gear, lay it all on the ground, and then do something to provoke the planet. So like zip it with electricity, blow something up, whatever, generate a signal, see how that signal changes. And then you kind of like slip in the, like the hitchhiker's guide mode of I have the answer, what was the question? I have how the signal changed, what needed to have happened in the earth to get there. Um, spend time looking at 
lots of rocks. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> mahogany obsidian here because you know. Oh, wait, mahogany obsidian. Yeah, so Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I'm oh. up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Oregon, we get not just obsidian, which is a volcanic glass, but we get mm -hmm. mahogany obsidian. So let's see. Oh, my gosh. So what happens to make it become mahogany? <laughs> so it's just slightly different chemical composition, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so a glass like this, or I shouldn't hold it quite that tight. I will cut myself on my rock. Um Anytime you have um, um, lava, something like that, that cools really, really fast, so fast it can't even form crystal structure, then you end up with a glass instead, like obsidian. Mm -hmm. uh, and normally it's black, but depending on what exactly the chemical composition is, you can have it be more green, you can have it be more ready brown, more mahogany, any sorts of colors like that. Just depends what, what your geology is. That is so cool. That's so cool. Like, I... What was it my favorite igneous? I think I took geology like three semesters ago. Basalt was like one of the things that was like just most fascinating to me. For I don't, it was just so, sounds so cool. And I think it was also basalt's not the green one. It was um, olivine. Olivine. Okay, there we go. Olivine. There is one. Wow. I'd be like <laughs> Professor Finney would be like, "How dare you forget everything?" Like I had it all memorized, but that was three semesters ago. So <laughs> it's okay. We've got actually a whole bunch of different green ones, and you might not have met mahogany. You might have met. Right? Da -da, see, we're gonna do rock show and tell because we're currently in my office, and although I have not yet decorated the new office, I do have like rows and rows of rocks over here. Yes. <laughs> so just a second, I pulled the closest green rocks over here. Okay. So, most common green rocks you're going to find are olivine, which is most, by volume, most of our planet is olivine, yet we rarely actually see it here at the surface, because it's all in the upper mantle. So you've got the crust yeah. is, um, continental crust is roughly speaking all quartz, uh, or all um, granite, mm -hmm. with some dirt on top, and then oceanic crust is pretty much all basalt, with some sea goo on top, like mud on top. Yeah. The mantle, the top bit of the mantle, is all olivine, which is green, like pistachio green. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit lower than that is olivine, but with like, it's been squished and squeezed and had some water shoved in and now it's blue. So it goes green to blue. <laughs> and then below that is um, a mineral that isn't stable at the surface. So we don't quite know what it looks like. <laughs> Just Wait, after, huh? So it goes olivine layer, the and then just this kind of like, then like <laughs> the rest of the mantle is full of. We know it exists and what it's made of, but we're not quite sure what it looks like. And then below that would be the outer core, the liquid outer core, which gives us that moving around gives us our magnetic field and why we have air and don't get like killed by geomagnetic storms and how come we have aurora like all oh, like really the sun is a deadly stuff. laser <laughs> exactly and then the center is like the iron nickel core with iron crystals iron nickel crystals under such immense pressure that we're like ah don't know what that looks like either mm -hmm. it's solid and dense <laughs> um so although most of the planet like by volume most of the planet is at olivine we don't actually see it at the surface very much because it's underneath the crust. Yeah. So up at the surface, we tend to see things like nails. This is a little shard of quartz with some chlorine in it. So chlorine like from your swimming pool, but when you integrate oh, it into rocks, 
you end up with it looks kind of like bubbly yeah so this one it actually feels almost soapy this particular one like it's not quite soapy but if you Mm -hmm. rub it you're like oh i feel like i should get a lather if i just keep going (laughs) maybe if i sing a song and scrub my finger it doesn't work but you know but does it taste like soap no this one doesn't taste like much at all but um let's see Somewhere over here. I'm not actually sure which one it is. Yeah, that one's halite. So this one here. Halite is uh, salt, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, this is what your normal table salt is. Mm-hmm. And it actually grows in these perfect little cubes. So if you ever look at your table salt and look at it super, super tiny, it's tiny, tiny little cubes just like this. Um, and sugar isn't. So if you want to do like ridiculous dorm tricks, <laughs> this is... For me, first year physics student undergrad <laughs> was sprinkle salt on the table, then use it to prop your salt shaker up and just balance it there. And you can get it to sit at like a nice 30 degree angle. But oh. if you try and do it with sugar, it won't work. It'll just like. It doesn't have that little cube for it to rest on. I, that is Theology. so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, totally, completely unlikable, but just pretty would be the calcite so mm. not a cube instead we've got like a parallelogram thing going on and yeah. it's got weird optics in between so it's doing like a funny little op- offset thing mm-hmm. or the gypsum which does like tv rock so it's actually a whole bunch of tiny little fiber optic cables geologic fiber optics <laughs> that is so cool or <laughs> selenite wands Oh, whoa, what? So the ends of this were cut. The ends Uh of this were cut and clipped. But the the square shape is natural. That's how it grows. Wait, is that the one that grows in caves? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is so cool. The selenite wands are kind of, I always think of them as being like fairy wands or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it could be. Like, (laughs) could cause some damage with this. Go after if all I the was trolls a wizard with that. And had a selenite <laughs> wand. I would go forth and just beat the fighters into submission. <laughs> so there I we go. It. I love it. Geology story time. <laughs> I have no idea what started that. I don't remember. Eh, whatever. It's all good. We saw some green rocks. We saw some clear rocks. Mm-hmm. We licked a rock. Whatever. No, I love how um that was like day one in uh, Finney's class. He's like, all right, so geology is probably like the one science. Where you can actually lick what you're studying. Everything else is just super dangerous. I just don't do it. (laughs) Oh, it's totally. And it legitimately is how I identify some of my samples at home. Because I've gotten lazy and I don't label them very well. I'm bad. Um, Like, they're they're completely scientifically worthless. Because they have no context or labeling at all. They're Mm -hmm. just pretty rocks that I like. Because they're pretty. Um, But when you have... Like an entire box of white and clear crystals of all vaguely the same shape. And you can lick one and be like, salt, halite, sour, silvite, (laughs) done. All right, now I just have to sort all the quartzes and calcites and everything else. Yeah, like go ahead and eliminate two like categories. Like, all right, like my workload's less now. (laughs) Exactly. Then go through with some acid, drop it on there, be like, what bubbles? Great. All of you are calcite and aragonite. Get you out. Um, So works out that's so exciting like i um have you what was it um zumaya in spain have you heard of that um i just remembered because like professor finney he like did all this research in zumaya and it's like all these um 
it's this beach area and like the whole like side of this cliff is a um what's the word it's like a severe and anticline i think it's like when they're going Mm -hmm. vertical i think it's the anticline um like the sharp curve like that and then syncline would be the bottom half of it um yeah i mean they're kind of like they're just literally all up then that'd be an anticline yeah yeah they're like literally just all like horizontal lines like all shape it's gnarly um but there's it's super fascinating because like you see like the color change it's like oh at this point was when the dinosaurs were here and then you see like super hot period and super cold I love visiting anywhere where you can touch that little KT boundary. I went on a, yeah, yeah. a hike to a beach cliff in Australia. Literally, I only went to that beach so I could be like, and this is the day the dinosaurs died. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I was like, oh, I can't. I want to go and visit it so badly. Um, like, places yeah. like that. It's so cool. North America's rocks are, for the most part, not very old. I mean, at least on the West Coast. On the East Coast, you got some old things. Like, mm-hmm. the Canadian Shield is one of the original Cretans. So that's like... The original continent, the OG <laughs> continent, the little globs, they're yeah. always floating and everything kind of gets like whooshed on and scraped onto them. And then we like rip them apart and shred the continents and clash them together and like, yay, mountains, all of that. Yeah. Um, and the Canadian Shield is one for North America, which I mean, means we have a beloved landmass. <laughs> it's very <laughs> Canadian to be like, we're very proud of our rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> really old um and we're in competition with australia over who has the oldest rock australia has the oldest surface rock but we have the oldest like mantle rock so wait oldest mantle but isn't so was rock that was in the mantle and then got erupted up so we have a xenolith that we're like "Ah, oh oh okay got it but it's still freaking ancient i mean (laughs) the oldest rock i have here is not nearly as old is that I've got a little chunk of abandoned iron formation, which is an extinct rock. Oh, that's so that's pretty. Roughly speaking, um, about two billion years old, just kind of hanging out. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, half the age of our planet, the time period where we got oxygen. Uh, you know, it's that not like it's special or anything. <laughs> like, that is so pretty. Like, Make me want to go and start a rock collection now. <laughs> oh, everybody should have a rock. Everyone should have at least one rock. They don't necessarily need to have it be like special or fancy or anything like that. It can be just the smooth rock that you picked up because you liked it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. You just need a rock. Makes everything better. Everyone needs a pet rock. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how does like, so with um, your consulting or consultationing, it's been midterms week. My brain's so fried. <laughs> I'm sure you you probably remember the times of finals and midterms, but um, so oh, being the prof for them is not more fun. Oh, you would really? think this, but you have to do the grading. And if you write a bad test, and one of the questions isn't very good, and your students get confused and are more tested on oh, reading no. comprehension than the ad- how do you fix that? What if you write a bad test? It's horrible. It's so much like, Mm -hmm. at least as a student, if I messed up, only my grade suffered and like I'd fail on my own rights. Yeah. But as a prof, if I mess up, my entire class fails. And I'm just like, let's never speak of this again. Yeah. I mean, would you, would it just be like a curve at that point? Or you like just eliminate that question or? I mean, if you can, like, 
if you can fix the question, if you can like retrofit it, if you can <laughs> widen up the acceptable answers. But sometimes you have to just like, if you have too many of them and then you have to grade out of a different number of points, like there's all sorts of things you can do, but every now and then you're just like, I can't salvage this. No. I just, I completely messed this up in every conceivable way and I can't fix it. Um, or you can have things like I had the photocopier decide that it wasn't going to make my tests. Oh, and I've only given myself a four hour buffer to do it. And I did not have them copied by the time my students needed them. That wasn't good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> or if somebody does something like if they, you're pretty, like the ways in which students cheat are bizarre. Like they hide notes inside the toilet paper dispenser, and you're like, I don't want to go risk wait, what? the bathrooms. Like, like, wait, did one of your students do that, or that was like a story yeah. from like? <laughs> oh no, that happened when I was a TA. <gasps> oh, so my now gosh. it's part of our whole system to go through and check the bathrooms at the start of the test to make sure nobody's shoved notes up inside the toilet paper dispenser. Where you're just like, really, just study. Just study. It's so much less pain. Yeah. Like, by the time you go through, like, high-level intricate cheating, you have invested more time than you could have, like, just study. Yeah. What, what was that quote? It was, like, people will go through more work in order to be lazy, <laughs> like, rather than just doing the work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's worth it, right? Like... <laughs> If you can figure out how to program something so you only have to do it once, but it takes like 19 hours to do it the first time, but then any other time in the future is just done, mm -hmm. fantastic, right? Um, but I mean, other times you're like, procrastination and dread, just pushing it off forever. And then like, you know, one hour before, it's like, I made a mistake and everything's spiraling. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> but with more experience, you do get to the point where you're like, well, my failure mode is a lot nicer now. Like, I know how to mitigate my failure mode. So when things go totally off the rails, it's salvageable. So good enough. Like, I'm satisfied with this crash and burn because it's not as big of an explosion as it could have been. <laughs> exactly. Which worked out really well considering I work with disasters, right? Like all I, a, a huge chunk of what I do is risk reduction and assessment and like Ooh. how do we understand what our hazards are so we can make better choices so when things go wrong, they're less bad. So what's your favorite like disaster to study? So I really like any disasters where nobody dies, right? Yeah. Like, you just have the phenomena and nothing is impacted. So technically speaking, there was no actual disaster. Mm -hmm. There's just like... Or, or like just spooky Mars. natural phenomenon. Like... Like, I just, I like when nobody dies. This mm -hmm. is anything where nobody dies. Right now what I'm working on is uh, landslides on asteroids, which is... Wait. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I don't have it in this room. It's in the other room. I have a little model of 67P, the, the comet that's shaped like a ducky. Uh, <laughs> so the European Space Agency sent the Rosetta mission to comet 67P. I really wish I brought it into this room. Here we go. Moose will be our stand-in. Oh, yes. <laughs> so they went to the rubber ducky comet, currently <laughs> shaped like a moose. And they went in orbit around it with Rosetta, and Rosetta dropped the fillet lander. Woohoo! <laughs> It's everyone bounce, bounce, bounce upside down, legs in the air next to a cliff and died. And we went, oh boy, 
<laughs> that's not good. Yeah. Um, and lost the lander inside of a couple of hours, which is like money and time and effort and hopes and dreams just shot. Yeah. Uh, so we went, let's never, ever, ever have that happen again. Um, and so I'm working on a team called Project Espresso. It's a NASA survey grant. I'm working with, um, I'm my, the project is headquartered in Colorado at the Southwest Research Institute. I'm okay. with SETI, the SETI Institute, um, is my, my like, affiliation for this. Um, and what we're doing is trying to create a tool set that you can put on any sort of robot or human mission or whatever else, we don't care what, that goes to a small body, an asteroid, a comet, moon. And we can look before you land, so while you're in orbit, use geophysics, use sensors, use all the remote sensing techniques to go where is interesting, where is safe, there's the overlap, let's land there. Um, it's something that would have been helpful during the most recent JAXA had the Habayasha uh, um, 2 mission to the asteroid uh, Ryugu, and it went in orbit, and it landed a couple of times, took a bunch of samples, and left. But right now, uh, NASA still has a Cyrus-Rex in orbit around Bennu, trying to find like a safe place in all of these rocks and boulders. Like The entire thing looks like just a pile of loosely consolidated rubble. Like, <laughs> it's less an asteroid and more just like a pile of mush like, at it. Just, yeah. just bury the whole thing in rocks and call it an asteroid. Um, so something like that, trying to figure out what the, the hazard assessment would be, what the risk assessment would be for where can you land safely so you can go and collect your samples and not have like a rock get dislodged and come and slam and smash your poor little spacecraft. It's, that is so cool. <laughs> um, so you're using like a lot of like modeling then. For, mm -hmm. for that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that uses smooth particle hydrodynamics, which is if you have a whole bunch of little teeny tiny imaginary particles and you ram them into each other and go, what happens to all of you interacting? Um, it turns out that landslides, despite being rocks, actually behave kind of like fluids. At least big ones do. So small little landslides is just sliding block physics. You yeah. have slope, you have a friction, you have an angle, you have gravity, psh, slide, done. Mm -hmm. But once they start getting too big, they start acting more like fluids and they run out farther and faster than we think they should. Um, so well, I would that be kind of like an avalanche? Yeah, so avalanches yeah. Are, are part of this categorization of overly mobile landslides, long run out landslides. Um, and there's, there's like whole classes of them. Sometimes there are avalanches that do it. There's sand does it even when it's small. Um, things that are really wet do it. A uh, lot of the volcanic landslides, mass movements do it. And we mm. think that some of the things on asteroids do, although it's kind of hard to tell because we haven't looked at a lot of asteroids in detail. <laughs> so I have like a handful of case studies to look at. So in addition to those, like those case studies and my models, we are getting prepared to do a low gravity flight. So Ooh. have you heard of the Vomit Comet before? Yes. I've been wanting to go on it. <laughs> the Vomit Comet is like the big airplane that does para uh, parabolas, flies up, down, up, down, up, down. Mm -hmm. And you get uh, no gravity, double gravity, no gravity, double gravity. And you have microgravity in between. Well, we're going to be on a smaller version of this. So same concept, smaller aircraft. And mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be doing a whole series of experiments, some of them in a vacuum chamber, so we can have low gravity and no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a whole bunch of little sandboxes so I can do low gravity landslides and see exactly what happens with them. So I've got some some laboratory data to be able to then use as another 
like pinpoint in my models and be like, okay, how do they behave mm-hmm. in this situation? Oh, that's going to be so much fun. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I, you saw when I tweeted at you before when you were on like the education thing, like I was in, had the notion of like, I'll be an aerospace engineer and be an astronaut. And so like this whole thing of like one day I'll be on the vomit comet one day I'll experience zero gravity. <laughs> like, so I'm so excited for you. That's going to be so awesome. Like, oh, totally. And you know, the astronaut applications are open right now, right? I mean, it doesn't even matter if you qualify, just apply anyway for the practice of it. It's like, all right, hi. So my eyes are bad. I'm an Asian studies major. And um, <laughs> like this is, I applied for the Korean astronaut program and I made it to the top 15% before I got cut. And it is my proudest failure. Like that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't, I am not a Canadian astronaut, but, yeah, but I mean like that you made it there. That's congrats. Because I wanted to make it 50, 50. Like I just uh-huh. wanted to like make it through the initial paper screening effectively. And instead, I made it through several rounds. And I'm just like, okay, I'll do it. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. I'll, I'll do it, and I'll keep, I'll keep you posted, and just be like, okay, like maybe. <laughs> Why, not? Why not? Right? Like, mm-hmm. make them eliminate you. Don't opt. Like, if there's something you want to do, then try it, and make other people tell you you can't. Like, and then prove the, them wrong. <laughs> like, literally, the worst that happens is you don't get it, and you're exactly where you were if you didn't try in the first place. True. Very, very true, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> like philosophy. Wisdom bomb. <laughs> um, a quick chat question here. Hardware Barbecue is asking, so as a geophysicist, what do you think about flat earthers? <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> My problem is not so much with the the logic of flat earth because I mean to a very 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 rough approximation from local data the earth is flat then the next approximation is the earth is a sphere then the next approximation is the earth is a oblate spheroid so a sphere that got squished and then to the next approximation it's a lumpy potato and then you can keep going of seeing all the different ways that you can look at the, the exact gravitational field of the Earth to figure out what its shape is. So, I mean, if you're just going to look around you and see that, then okay, fine. My problem then comes in with the levels of science you need to deny and to refuse in order to go forward with that, and how unfortunately there tends to be an extremely high correlation with people who are advocating for flat Earth theory and ones who... Um, demonstrate political attitudes that are personally dangerous for me and for people who are uh, more vulnerable populations that I would like to protect inside of the sciences. Yeah. So you tend to have large amounts of racism, large amounts of sexism, um, large amounts of homophobia, large amounts of religious intolerance. All these attitudes tend to get grouped together. Not that every flat earther is these things, but if you're in a group of flat earthers, it's probably going to be a group that is not friendly to a woman scientist. Mm-hmm. So my basic viewpoint is do not engage, stay very far away. If they find me in a small room, I'll be leaving that room very rapidly. It's like, and peace guys. <laughs> exactly. exactly. But for the most part, they don't actually approach me because uh, what's the point? 
right? Yeah. Like, why bother going after a geophysicist about what shape is the planet? I can tell you what shape the planet is <laughs> from the gravitational field in a great deal of detail. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I literally got my degree in this. <laughs> exactly. Like, I know exactly what goes into geodetics, which is like the most patient form of science there is, where you're wandering around being like, oh, it is 0.001 milligram higher than it <laughs> It turns out right here, maybe we have an iron deposit. Like, <laughs> it is seriously finicky work. Yeah, uh, it's it's beautiful work, though. Like, in my opinion, I think um, geology, if I didn't already had, like, environmental science as my minor, I totally would have put geology on because I wanted, like, I fell in love with igneous rocks. Um, and they're so cool. And it's just, geology is super beautiful and fascinating. And... If it's I've incredible. This rock inside of, I don't know if I actually have any volcanic rocks at all in this room. I have mostly, mostly sedimentaries over here. I have a lot of, I have some fossils. Oh, here we go. Ooh. I mean, sedimentary is kind of the most, like, efficient study, right? Ooh. So what we have here, um, with uh, any of the igneous rocks, if it cools slowly, it has big crystals. If it cools quickly, it has small crystals. Mm -hmm. So you've got the, the size of the crystals. So this one, tiny, tiny little crystals. You can't even see them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it cooled pretty fast. And then the next chunk of it is, uh, what color is it? Um, the whiter it is, the more quartz there is. Uh, the darker it is, the less quartz there is. Mm -hmm. um, those dark materials tend to be from oceanic volcanoes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the things with a lot of quartz are going to come from anywhere continental plates. So you get like Mount St. Helens, something like that. Uh, and then this one is actually from a mine. So it's got a little quartz vein running through it. So cool. And then a whole bunch of pyrite is glittering on there. So fool's gold. And then dun, 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 in all of the fool's gold, there is... One little bit of real gold, and I don't know if I'm going to find it quickly or not, but you have to look for in all the little shiny bits, looking for all of the martini tiny little cubes, little squares, because they're pyrite, like, um, pyrite, like that, it's, there we go, so little cubes, super shiny, as you get from salt, from halite, um, so you look for the one thing that's not a cube, unfortunately... <laughs> So you know how we're currently in an epidemic where we're all having to wash our hands a whole lot, right? Yeah. Uh, now I've touched this rock, I absolutely cannot lick my fingers because there is a bit of arsenic on this rock. Oh, jeez. So... <laughs> yeah, please, please do don't do that. <laughs> also, do not lick this one. Yeah. These are on the do not lick list. They won't poison me abruptly, but... but I mean, know, with, with enough I, licks. <laughs> yeah, I like to keep my arsenic dose very, very low on a day-to-day -day basis, so just no licking. It's like, oh, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's, I think that's my only igneous rock in this room. It's a very pretty igneous rock. Yeah, it's got the shiny. Um, so with um, like your sci-fi... I'm trying to think of like a good segue. I'm here like, no, that's just kind of like an abrupt talk top again, yeah. going direct into like, so video game geology. So how, yes. like, have you like done like console consulting for that? Or like, is there something that like, how does that work out? Or, or are there, yes. that's a good oh. question. Like, is there a video game that's on point with that? And is there a video game that's like super just, 
<laughs> so there's yeah. a bunch of things that can go on. Um, so there's there's a lot of physics and astronomy and geology and all of these things go into video games. Physics is the easiest one because you need physics engines in order to have like your water and your people moving around and all of that. Yeah. And things like astronomy, um, there's in... Um, Oh, I'm just going to blank out on the name of the massive online, multi, massive multiplayer online game of like spaceships around the galaxy. Oh, Stellaris? Uh, uh, no, no it's, still, it's not Stellaris. Uh, uh, da, da, da. Let's see if I can find it. Um, so, that, 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 like, it's the huge big one that's like, oh, everybody Eve? has played forever. No Man's Eve, Sky? Yeah, yeah, Eve. Eve, Eve. Okay. Yeah, so that one. It has actually one of the stars in there is um, using real scientific data and people who are going and flying past it because of how their computer is processing that data is actually contributing to being able to study the star better. Just like kind of casually. And it's like not even listed in the game or anything like that. It's just there. Or That's there's so cool. Um, in World of Warcraft, there was... Uh, so we can do research inside of video games of things. Like in World of Warcraft, there was a bug um, that led to... Um, players taking a whole bunch of damage and it lasts for a little while and then but if you came to contact another player it spread to them if you were near your pets it spread to them if you despawned your pet and then brought it back it would still be contaminated and it would spread like a plague and then they started looking at like some high level players would deliberately go infect low level players to kill them off and loot their bodies or to just be mean um so they had all these sorts of plague behaviors going on um that we can then look at and use to look at the sociology of how do humans react when you tell them there's an epidemic, who's going to believe it, who's going to ignore it, how are they going to react to it, are you going to have people working to the common good, are you going to have people sabotaging the common good, like what's going to happen? Um, so there's things like that. And then there's just emergent science that you can find find in games. So there's, like, the things you can consult on, mm -hmm. and there's the things that you can study in the game. And then there's something like Zelda Breath of the Wild or Skyrim. We've got this giant world that you can go explore, and they've got resources there distributed in particular ways. And depending on the quality of the game, they also have different texture packets to go with it. Yeah. And sometimes they even have different topographies and things like that. So you can find different types of mineral resources in different parts of the game. If you go around and start making a map of what you find where, you can start building a geological map or an ecological map or figuring out what, like, what ecological zones do you have in different parts of Zelda and, like, what type of frogs do you find where and do you have areas where the different types of frogs overlap? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, study that all up and see how those interactions happen. And what happens if you take a frog from one place and, like, run it around and drop it somewhere else and see if you can get more of them? Oh, like, my gosh, it's so awesome. breaking the spawn points. Because mm -hmm. you can break the spawn points inside of um, uh, uh, Don't Starve Together, mm -hmm. where you do things like you can get a mammoth, chase you, and you can go find a mammoth somewhere else and get it to go, or be, be beefalo, pardon me, yeah. to chase you, and then as soon as you have two of them, they'll start mating. Yeah. They'll have little baby mammoths in the, or beefalo in this place that totally didn't have them before. <laughs> um, so I just, I like that you could do these things in video games because the, the concepts are the same in real life, which is what can I use from my observations to understand the rules about how this place works? Because games follow rules. Programmers follow rules. They have 
things that they write into the game to make the program work. It goes back to that laziness factor again. You're not going to hand select every single place on a random generated map. Instead, yeah. you're going to have certain ecosystems together or you're going to pre-establish it and be like, well, and populate all the resources out at like this density in there. So you can look at those things and try and figure out what the rules must have been to create the world that you're seeing, uh-huh. which is exactly what we do in real life. So, love it. I That's love it. so it's awesome. Almost, now, I'm going to start looking at video games like differently now. From <laughs> games that I've played is my, like, this is my video game notebook for fieldwork. I love it. Um, That's so awesome. Well, together what I'm finding in different ones mm-hmm. and then like building it up and being like, okay. So I haven't tried it yet, but apparently Call of Duty Modern Warfare actually has enough marble in it uh, to make it an interesting thing to try and piece together what the geologic past that it must have been. I've never tried playing it though, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, something like Dwarf Fortress uses science-inspired randomly generated worlds so you can figure out what the science rules were when they put it together and then compare multiple randomly generated worlds in order to figure out what the base rules of the overarching universe is. Mm-hmm. So there's there's all sorts of things. And then you sometimes run into something like No Man's Sky where it's just like completely random and you're like, <laughs> rocks aren't random. Like, there has to be this. a method. <laughs> well, and that there has to be, like, some sort of geologic history. Where somewhere like Skyrim, somebody actually went through and built an entire geologic map with a history of, okay, so here's where you have the fault zones, and here's, like, where the uplift was, so here's, like, what the relative ages of these materials must have been in order to create this world that we're seeing with the ore resources where they are. I'm like, yep. Oh my gosh, that would be such a fun job. <laughs> it's like, okay, play video games and doing field work in Skyrim. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just figure it out. It's okay. Oh man. So what's like your favorite game that you've analyzed or something that was like in the game where you're like, this is incredible? Oh, I like, I don't, uh, I like to appreciate each one on their own. Mm-hmm. I try not to compare between them because everyone's got their different backgrounds and their different resources and different amounts of time and energy and everything else they can put into it. True. And I play games for a lot of different reasons. Like, there has never been a Dragon Age game that I will not purchase. I know it is the reason why I will next upgrade my computer will be to make sure that I can play the next Dragon Age. So there's no point in me doing it until then. Like, I have pre-ordered and purchased that game uh, Dragon Age 2 and 3, I both both of them pre-ordered and purchased the game months before I could afford the upgrade to the computer in order to install and play it. <laughs> Just because I'm like, nope, this game comes first, computer shows up later. So there's... But it, the geology in it isn't particularly interesting. Mm. <laughs> there are huge chunks, especially in uh, Dragon Age 2, where they just recycle the same chunk of the map over and over and um, over, oh over, no. and over, over and over again. And you're like, let's go play in the sand dunes. Oh, I'm going back to the sand dunes. <laughs> oh, it's like, there's just sand, sand everywhere. Sand be dynamic. Sand dunes should be moving. Why are they always saying sand dunes? So I'm not exactly going to be in love with the geology of it. Yeah. But it's my 
same story. Like I know exactly what my world plays out in and I will replay with like every possible character options to figure things out and be like, nope, this is, this is my canon storyline. This is what happened yeah. <laughs> in the next one. Be like, okay, we have built up. This is the correct history of this world. Very possessive of it. That's awesome. Yeah, my man, I think I have Dragon Age Origins. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I haven't been able to sit down and play it yet. I probably should over spring break go ahead and get that, like check it out. Yeah, I, I refuse to finish like this is Another of my weird quirks about this particular franchise is I refuse to finish the prior game until the next one is announced. So I'll stop at like 95% and then hold there for several years being like, when's the next release date? I do that with books. Like when it's a good series, I'm like, okay, I have to wait. (laughs) Yep. Just like, and hold. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is like, so I took a video game narrative class last term because why not? Um, because if you're going to be a professor, you might as well also be a student. So you remember to have sympathy for your poor kids. Um, <laughs> That's a good idea. good point. <laughs> I'm taking a class this term. I'm taking a comic book narrative. And it Ooh. ends at the exact same. Like, my, I teach until 1220. And then I take class at 1230. And we have a very large campus. Oh, <laughs> I'm just no. like, we're going to end class exactly on time. I will pack up and I will run across campus and the class late and sit there huffing and puffing and being like, yeah, I, I am never going to give my students grief for being a few minutes late ever again. I did not realize how big this campus was. Yeah. Like, um, more than 10 minutes. Yeah. Like where I have to park on my campus. Like I didn't realize, so I got a Fitbit and I didn't realize how far I was walking until I checked my Fitbit and was like, I've walked five miles. What? Like, how was that even possible? <laughs> oh, every time I do a convention or a conference, I'm like, 11 kilometer day. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. But I guess like when you enjoy what you're doing, well, I mean, college, you have to walk everywhere regardless of whether or not you're enjoying it. But I mean, <laughs> you know, time just flies by. It's, it's you're doing something. Yeah. It's, it is less irritating than walking everywhere in Zelda true so true um unlocking the ability to like teleport in games is always the first priority every new game you're like all right what do i need to do to be able to teleport because we are not walking oh i've been like trying to figure that out in stardew because there's like totems but they're only like one time use so you're like i have to keep making all of them like yep Yep, that, that it, it turns out you can do a really, really expensive artifact that will allow you to continuously teleport, but then you can still only go to those like set locations. Um, mm. You can also get a pony. I need to get a pony. <laughs> you can get a pony. Oh my gosh. Um, and then just like ride it everywhere. I like Study Valley for its mining structure. And then as, as you go down the mines, you have like 10 levels of one type of thing, 10 levels of another resource, 10 levels of another resource where you've still got bits and pieces of the other ones, but the proportions <laughs> change all along the way. Except for I have more problems with the geoid field. Geoid, geoid field? Okay, I'm going to have a moment. Pronunciation. We're just going <laughs> to. The, the right rock back. field. With the, the boulder field that you can smash everything open. It's like a slag pile. Um, yeah. I think a slag pile annoyed me less than trying to figure out the geology of it because 
unlike everywhere else, it's like, yeah. it doesn't follow a pattern or a rhythm or a reason to it. So yeah, I've decided it's slag. So it's like, a, it's a, like a mining waste pile from the next city over. This is like dumping on the edge, which seems like a Stardew Valley sort of thing. Quite honestly, it turns out next door to Stardew Valley is like, I don't know, industrial mine waste city. Um, and they're just like, yeah, environmental regulations. Nobody's paying attention. Oh man. So like, you know, like when you start Stardew and like the, um, the, the mine is initially blocked because of JoJo. And they're like, oh, you know, we're perfectly like in the letter. Like we're totally within our environmental code. And I'm here like, are you? Are you really? <laughs> it's like, oh. I know about companies like you. <laughs> oh, and that there's all sorts of fun things. Like the EPA does not have an enforcement branch. So if you're out of code, it's not like they can enforce it. They have to wait for somebody else to notice and then for like a private citizen group to sue them, which is why one of my favorite things is there's a group of surfers in California. It's a nonprofit that is surfers send in water samples to mass test to monitor for water pollution. Oh, wait, is this Surfrider? Yeah. I love them. <laughs> We're just like, yep, there we go. Collective power in action. Yeah, Surfrider, um, there was, they've been protesting the, um, the desalination plant that they're trying to build by the Bolsa Chica wetlands in Huntington. And I think they're also advocating for removing the, um, what's it called? It's the, the wave, the wave breaker wall in Long Beach. Cause like they built a wave breaker when they were building like the big Harbor in the port. And then it's been causing a lot of pollution to like collect there. Cause like there's no waves. So they've been trying to be like, can you tear this down? These. Like the beach is disgusting. But yeah. Coastal engineering is totally one of those situations where you're like, okay, so unintended consequences everywhere. Like if you put like a jetty out here, then you're gonna build that beach on one side, but strip it on the other. And if you build like a wall to protect your chunk of beach, you're gonna lose all the beach in front of it and everything downstream. Like it just keeps going. And then we end up with situations where there's some barrier islands out in New Jersey hmm. where the longshore drift, so the, the angle the waves came out was that particular angle. Uh, and based on that angle, you should have started the first of their jetties out at, at the bottom. Uh -huh. um, and instead, because there was money involved, they started at the top and it started eroding. And then a big storm came through and it cut the island in half. And you're like, okay, so money. money so uh, money and cutting corners. Can we not? <laughs> yeah. Turns out the earth doesn't care about your income. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that's. There's a lot of disasters work where um, money and politics make all the difference for the people. But for the actual physical phenomena, it's really quite egalitarian. And like, maybe the rich people live in a slightly safer location because the land is more expensive. But if you make a bad geology choice, then it gets it's not going to totally. save you. It's still just... Yeah, I mean, like, speaking of... It, not a bad geology decision, but like a bad geography decision. All these like, you know, rich houses up in like California where like they're in the wildfire zone. And they're like, oh no. And I'm like, it happens over here. Don't rebuild there. 
Oh, so that's a whole other realm of like, what is our changing hazard map and what are we going to do about it? And where are our smart places to build and where are silly places to build and where are places we built before we realized they were a bad idea and what are we going to do about it now? Mm-hmm. So the trouble is, is that everywhere is a problem, right? You've got flood zones and flood plains. You've got uh, bottoms of slope for landslides, top of slope for landslides. You've got fire zones. You've got droughts that are happening and making it all hotter and drier you've got more extreme weather patterns you have storms that are building up faster and more intense more frequently and you could expect all of it to keep happening again and again and again like it's just this huge big mess and instead we're like we really need to be talking about things like adaption to go along with mitigation mm-hmm. so we need to decide new orleans is physically sinking yeah its river delta has been locked in place, so it no longer uh, meanders across the front there because we need it in one place to have a port. Mm-hmm. And we've controlled flood measures up the entire Mississippi, so it's no longer picking up all that rich sediment, taking it downstream and dumping it in New Orleans. Yeah. So it's like just flat out, it is sinking. And then you add in the problems of sea level rise and the problems of more intense storms. And the problems of having stripped out the bays in front, the yeah. bayous, the mangroves, like the swamps and the mangroves and the bayous, bayous and like all of these things, estuaries that are protective coastal barriers. And you're in a situation where you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be bad over and 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 over again. And are we going to allow it to keep going bad until we can't save it? Or are we going to do some sort of like managed retreat? Or are we going to dump in enough resources to protect it? What are we going to do? And if we just are constantly in a reactive mode, then we, we can't, can't actually like do solutions. Yeah, we can't. We can't prioritize. We can't coordinate. We can't decide we're going to protect this area and retreat that area. We can't do okay. We're all going to like push forward here. We're, we can't do things like coordinated buildouts. All of this stuff, it requires, those are big, hard conversations. It's not like there's some simple answer that we can just slap into place. But we're so distracted by arguing about if there's a problem, that we're limiting our options on actually addressing it. And that's what I find so frustrating. Um, Oh, yeah. Like, I just, being on Twitch (laughs) and trying to talk, um about like the climate crisis and environmental problems. And I've had to like, cause sometimes I'll get people that are like, well, you know, I don't really like trust the science. I'm like, okay, but can you acknowledge that like we're polluting? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a problem. Let's fix it. <laughs> like I've had to like twist things. Cause there are people that are just so against like what masters or doctorate holders have to say. And I'm, I'm like so mind boggled. I'm like, when did we stop trusting the people who have been dedicating their lives to just follow the scientific method and just be smart? (laughs) Like the practice of science is this incredible tool where you can use it to look around the world that it is right now, figure out how things work and then use that to create any future you want. Mm -hmm. It's a superpower. I can pick up my selenium selenite wand and have like my magic wand of science again. It's like this idea that I can pick my future and just be like, these are the choices that get me there. Jazz hands again. Um, And we're choosing not to do it. It's really frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. 
Yeah, like um it's not necessary. Like there there's already enough big hard huge problems in this world. Why invent more? Yeah, I completely agree. And what's so cuz like stuff that I've heard before is that it's like we know what we need to do, but then it becomes this big dispute of like, well, how should we do it? Like like you know Isma, like her whole thing like, well, how should I do it? <laughs> Um, and then it's like the whole, I know, uh, like the Sanders campaigns that like, gets the flack for the Green New Deal because they're like, oh, but then you want to bring socialist policy in. And it's like, well, I mean, if that's what's going to get us there faster, like, is that less bad? I just need less bad. Yeah. I like, will deal with whatever details we need to do. I just need things to be less terrible. And yeah. I will work whatever that means, which is, I mean, lowered expectations. <laughs> Yeah, something optimistic. So when you're working with disasters, one of the biggest things you can do is, yes, you should do all of this planning and putting together a kit and taking care of reducing local hazards and all of these things. Like there's a huge never ending list, but we're lazy, we're overworked, we're broke, we don't have time or space for prep. But if you literally throw parties and invite your neighbors then you are increasing your community resilience. So when things go wrong, your neighbors are more likely to notice and to help, mm-hmm. which means your odds of survival go up 10 to 15%, Yeah, which is incredible, right? Like, yes, you should do all of this disaster preparedness, but if you're going to skimp out and do just one thing, throw a party and live, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's you know, like knowing that, your community helps in like so many aspects of everything. Oh, yes. Like it's incredible. It's like mm-hmm. I could go off for hours about it. But mm-hmm. in the climate change context, it turns out that literally just talking about climate change is enough to increase the likelihood of meaningful action. Mm-hmm. Like yes, there's all these other things you can do and should do and it would be really great if we could <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> our sands and hey, we just had a massive drop in oil prices. Maybe we should take that as a hint that the oil industry isn't profitable long term. And like, I don't work on something else. Um, <laughs> just, it's like you know, just just it. saying an oil economy is not really sustainable. But you know, <laughs> like I work in the geoscience industry. I I am in Canada where we are having lots of pipeline protests right now oh my god yeah going on yeah uh, like that's been um how has it it been in like your area because you said you're you're in british columbia which is right over by I'm there vancouver. we've got oh vancouver okay on here. we've definitely had our port blockaded we've had our, our rails blockaded we've had quite a few blockades come through mm-hmm. um i teach geological engineers it's a part of of what we talk about is looking at the there is a difference between good pipelines and bad pipelines and good projects and bad projects. There's a whole, whole realm of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a whole realm of solutions. And it's, it, it goes all over the place. And it like digging into it and the history of it and the Canadian context, we've got a lot of unceded territory, which means that it, there's no treaties in place between the First Nations people mm-hmm. and the Canadian government, which is a whole other mess. Um, So it's huge and big and complicated. And again, maybe we should take the hint that this is not working. Yeah, like when I saw like all this stuff break out, I was like, wait, we should be moving away from this. Why are you trying to build another one? And that British Columbia was against it and the federal government is pushing it is another question. 
that is a whole lot of local politics. There's money. there's something. <laughs> there's well, there's Canada. There is no money. Oh no, we have like none. Um, oh you man, are in the wrong context for that. Our our funding, our campaign funding, is kind of hilariously tiny. It's adorable, and I love it. It's pretty much like everybody who runs for office here is doing the equivalent of a high school class president campaign. I it's, love it. In Britain, <laughs> our current government was decided by under eight votes. Like, eight individual people going to the polls. Wow. government. We are a small province with a lot of very big opinions. I mean, at least they vote. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, at least they actually go and vote. <laughs> we definitely did some interesting things this last time around. Like, again, we could talk for hours about BC politics and just the absolute bizarreness of even trying to understand it. Like... <laughs> I don't think I can explain what's going on. Honestly, it's it's a it's lot. surreal. It's special. It's fun. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, like if you're available, like in the future, like we could always set up another, like kind of be like, all right, what's going on now? <laughs> Canadian politics because American politics is too depressing. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a lot. But, um, so I have um. So MLS was asking, like, what's your advice to finding internships as a geologist and getting your foot in the door before you graduate? Oh, uh, so depending what sort of work you want to do, uh, the if you're American, the National Park Service partners up with the Geological Society of America for something called GeoCore. GeoCore. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's paid internships in national parks. Uh, and there's all sorts of things from doing like coastal geomorphology to doing um, uh, science communication to doing volcano monitoring, like all sorts of things. So I love GeoCore. I think it's a, a really cool and interesting program. Um, Canada has similar sorts of programs through NSERC um, grants uh, partnered up with like Natural Resources Canada, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, things like that. The, the national agencies have money allocated to be able to bring students with them in the summertime. So you can look at each of those internships. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but... I'm sure there's something going on with those. Um, there's also a lot of field field camps and field schools. So that's not being paid. That is paying to do field work um, and getting to experience like there's a, a Girls on Ice program in Alaska, the Juno Girls on Ice program. There's all, I did the um, Victoria Institute of Earth and Planetary Sciences, which is a Western Australian university network that does a whole bunch of short courses. So you can do a travel abroad semester to Australia and just be like, I'm doing a field trip every week. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. I so, loved it. And that counts as like, so like, for example, with me having like Asian studies major, environmental science minor, but if I were like, okay, I want to go and get in this field work, like that counts as experience, right? Tasmania has an environmental sciences field camp that lasts for two weeks. You should look into that. I'm writing this down. Um, <laughs> and then a whole bunch of, if you want to work in industry, then a whole bunch of those companies also have paid internships. Everything should be paid. You should never work unpaid as a scientist or engineer, particularly as an intern. Preach. Um, <laughs> internships are legally must be paid. You cannot have an unpaid internship. Wait, Every, and then we have an American company in Canada that forgets that rule, and then we sue them. Yeah. Um, so check out your workers' rights on those. 
Um, it was Tasmania, right? Yeah. Okay, Tasmania. Yeah, as part of the Victoria Earth and uh, Victorian Institute of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Okay, Victorian. Leaps. <laughs> Victorian Institute of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't find a pen on my desk. So I'm like, okay, thank God for like phones and note apps. Yep. I did not get to do that particular field camp, but I really wanted to just because I could. Um, totally going to look into that. My timing didn't work out. So I know I just, I did coastal geomorphology instead. Oh no, I had to spend an entire week on the beach in Australia. Oh no. Oh, how, how terrible. That must it have been. was awful. It was truly terrible to go <laughs> wandering around so many beaches. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess the, the overarching advice there would be look at uh, the type of agencies or organizations you want to work for and seeing what they have on offer. Uh, there probably are organizations that are set up if you want to do more science communication things than the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, uh, has a whole series of fellowships um, that do placements, either policy placements in organizations like NASA or USGS, or communications placements that put you inside of media organizations like Wired Magazine as a paid intern on the science beat, learning that sort of thing. Yeah, they're good, in, good internships, good internships, and fellowships. Fellowships meaning you just graduated and now aren't quite full-time on a job yet. It's that weird in between. Fellowship. Like, yeah. Fellowship. Fellowship of the ring. <laughs> um, all right. Hardware if, is asking, if there's one type of rock you would like to study from any planet or moon, what would it be? Oh. And I don't have to worry about how we had actually successfully collected. We can just, like, magically get the rock. Yeah, you just so have the rock. I would take something from the, like, underneath the ice on Europa. Ooh. Like, I want, like, a sediment core underneath that ice and ocean. Mm. Hopefully with goop. Lots of goop. Um, so cool. So something that would look, yeah, probably vaguely, like, that ish so it'd be layers of sediment that build up mm -hmm. um this one happens to have a whole bunch of holes in it from like little creatures that drilled in there it's mm -hmm. also got fault lines but Ooh. i thought that it would tell us about the patterns of sedimentation and depth that would happen it would tell us about the chemistry of it it'd tell us if there's anything alive there <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> watch it be like we we crack open europa and then we're like oh there's actual mermaids. <laughs> there's all sorts of problems with ice drilling. So there's, um, underneath Antarctica, there are a bunch of subglacial lakes. So um, Antarctica, frozen ice. But as the pressure increases, it changes the melting temperature. Mm -hmm. And if you get a little bit melting, then you can get um, the, the salt will concentrate and it creates this like naturally, natural feedback loop of antifreeze, effectively. Okay. So once you have an ocean underneath ice, it tends to stay there. And we see this in Antarctica, we see this in Europa, we see this, we think, on Pluto. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a planet like that big but... shape and the haze. We don't know. Pluto's very confusing right now, all right? Yeah. There's a lot of things about Pluto where it's just like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like you're, you're an own magical orb just like, there. <laughs> that we did not anticipate uh -huh. it was awfully good we went to go look and find out it was totally different than we imagined mm -hmm. 
I kind of love how badly we've broken planetary sciences inside of our generation, just being like, oh, last couple of decades, everything you thought you knew, just chuck it out, start from scratch. Um, so planetary science kind of messed up. But anyways, we, we wanted to drill into Lake Vostok, the largest of these subglacial lakes. Um, and the original efforts, so the Sarah drilling down, and they had to stop because the drill got contaminated with, like, a, a tropical disease inside oh the drill. Oh, my system. God. So, like, the mud that you use to keep the drill running smoothly was contaminated. And we're like, oh, oh, okay. So we should stop. Burn it all. <laughs> and try again. Because you really don't want to, like, puncture into a brand new environment that you've never been in before to try and measure what that ecology is and bring contaminate Like, a we sudden are new pandemic. We are disgusting, filthy creatures, and everything we build is disgusting and filthy. Like, planetary mm. protection is not about protecting the Earth. It's about protecting everywhere else from how nasty we are. Like, that's the job. Yeah. We're, like, we're so gross that taking a spacecraft and, like, leaving it in deep space vacuum, like, bombarded by solar radiation for several months is still not enough to sterilize it. It's still just gross. Oh, my. Which is why our rovers are not allowed to go to the most interesting parts of Mars. We're like, well, mm, we are too dirty for that. It's like, don't break it, please. <laughs> yeah. So that is one of the problems when we're looking at, like, Europa mm -hmm. is can we not bring all our junk with us? <laughs> yeah, because like if there, because if oh yeah, because if there is life, we could just kill it, or we can contaminate it with our, our stuff, which then gets adapted, and then we find it later and go, oh look, it's really similar to Earth, but totally different and unique. We found the first alien life, yeah, that we brought here. Right? Like, tardigrades survive on the outside of the, the space station. And now there's a freaking tardigrade spill on the moon, which I'm just like, that's... I am not okay with space billionaires just flinging things across the solar system. I'm really not okay with it. Yeah, oh, well, on that, like, how do you feel about, um, like, let's go and colonate Mars and the moon, and <laughs> how do you feel about that? I have some huge problems with the col colonial language to it. I... Uh, hmm. The space industry already has a lot of problems with who is invited to the table and who is allowed to join and whose ideas are respected and mm -hmm. what is incorporated. There's already issues with um, it took until this year to get two women on the outside of the space station at the same time. And we've never had an all-woman crew. Mm -hmm. We've had more guys named, like, Oh, I did the count of everybody who'd been on the outside of the space station. It was like Michael, Alexi, and one other name, and all of them combined were more of them had been on the outside of the space station than women. And I'm like, really? Really? This is not okay. So I have issues Ooh. with that. Yeah. And then I have issues with um, the mindset of planet B mm -hmm. because Earth is easy mode. If you cannot maintain a habitable system on Earth, you will die anywhere else. Yeah. Like, this is just not going to happen. 
So I have problems with that viewpoint as well. And I have huge, huge, huge problems with the, it's okay, the first generation will be a suicide mission where everybody dies. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. no, 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 no. no. Uh, th- th- we shouldn't be treating people like that. <laughs> That's not okay. Yeah. And the, like the society you're going to build up that way is not going to work. And that the, the, if you take those mindsets and if you take the inherent wealth disparity, except for now, the boss has the ability to turn off your oxygen supply, you get into really terrifying dystopias very hard, very fast. Yeah. So I have issues with all of that. But on the flip side of that, I do think if we want to have a long-term human presence in space, and I do think we want to do really serious deep space exploration, we need to get our manufacturing in orbit. Mm -hmm. Or not necessarily in orbit, off Earth. We need to get outside of Earth's gravity well, which means being able to do things like mining and manufacturing in space, like on the moon or on asteroids or something like that. And I think that could be really interesting. It's not economical at all right now. Um, and there's a lot of problems with cross-disciplinarity where there's apparently a lot of people in the space mining community don't think that dust is a problem on Earth, so have never looked at any of the dust control solutions for like all of mining um how i find weird I, i'm here like there's literally dust in your home oh there's, there's dust everywhere yeah like so how dust control on mine sites is an entire specialization with like specific training and people assigned to the job yeah, and like, huge amounts like, of technology involved in how do you deal with dust and lung health and like, yep. I mean, it could even affect, like, vision. Like, so you don't ooh. really start from scratch on this. You can actually borrow from pre-existing expertise if you recognize those experts exist. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, we don't go looking there because, well, the resource industry has some reputation issues. Yeah. <laughs> Small, itty-bitty ones. Just, just those little problems that affect things on a, a big scale, but <laughs> yeah. Um, Paul is asking. Speaking of starships from a while, um, what? Do, oh, so what do you both think is the best of Star Trek's films? Oh, series or films? Oh well, so I worked on Star Trek Discovery, so that one. Ooh. <laughs> <Because> I. <laughs> It's a very selfish reason for it. Oh, I mean, um, that's I amazing. The ability uh, to do some um, disaster story time and community resilience story time inside of Picard, I'm appreciating right now. Um, also, anything ever that has pretty rocks, I like, which is literally all of them forever. Like They all go to Vascus Rocks and they're gorgeous. How could you not love it? I'm like, this is where I'm like going to lose all my nerd cred. Like, I haven't really even watched a lot of Star Trek. So, just like. <laughs> it's all right. You're always allowed to pick whichever type of fandom you'd like. You don't need to have all of them. Although the funniest, the funniest for me is anytime anybody gives me grief about Stargate and tries to challenge me on that. And I'm like, it's mm. so it's my handwriting in there. <laughs> you can challenge me but you'll be wrong um it's so like i am literally yeah it's like i'm literally the person about this 
Give you one straight science. That would be me. Not, I'm an expert. Literally, I created it. I am canon. <laughs> if I say Israel, that's what it is. Um, so that always kind of amuses me when I get fan challenged on that. It doesn't happen very often, um, but it does at least once a year. Somebody tries and, well, no. Mm-hmm. It's like Not I am enough. the god of this world. <laughs> Where that thing goes. Yes. Um. Oh, so we'll have this be like our last chat question. But Hardware's asking, what kind of work did you do on Star Trek Discovery? <laughs> so I have an incredibly tight NDA on that, where I need a permission slip. Oh. For- question i answer but i can say what do you think they would have used a disaster scientist for um in the first season (laughs) and try and figure it out for yourself (laughs) because i did not fill out pre pre pre-approved questions for my permission slip on this one got it i'll have to go and watch this now and just be like okay what am i looking for (laughs) exactly exactly why would they want to talk to a disaster scientist cool well Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on to my stream, Mika. I really appreciate it. And I I just love everything that you do. And thank you for the advice. Um, you know, like in the times of midterms, it's been this whole like existential, like I graduate in two months. <laughs> I'm like, what what's the what's the option? So this has been just personally extremely reassuring and really informative. Like, I didn't even know that there's sci-fi. Like, geo- geophysicists, that's amazing. There's all sorts of things out there. It's, if you're a student who's trying to figure out what you're going to do next, don't let people tell you you can't do it. Just try it. Uh, apply for things. Make them turn you down. There's a lot of socialization that goes into women tend not to apply for as many things. People of color tend not to apply for as many things. So just go for it. Make them turn you down. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, take pride in your failures. I keep a list. I have goals of how many things I want to fail. Uh, because it means that I am pushing myself. And if I'm not if I'm not getting turned down, then it means I'm not taking any risks and I'm not pushing to grow and to learn and to do something new. So. That is amazing advice. Like I because <laughs> normally failure is just viewed as like you did bad, you should feel bad. But like actually keeping a list and viewing it like that, I think I'm gonna start doing that. It's like setting yourself an objective of like, okay, I want to start with, I want 10 failures a year. You're talking about less than once a month, you're doing something outside your comfort zone. If you talk about 25 failures a year, every two weeks, you got to do something or try and do something that you don't think you can do, but you'd really like to. And most of the time, like it's kind of shocking how often people say yes, and you get a chance to do it after all. So I'm taking this to heart. Thank you. Do it. All right. It's been right. chatting with you. Have a fantastic evening. Good luck on the rest of your exams. Thank you. And good luck with, um, are you in finishing exam season or are you like? <laughs> we're, we're about to ramp up into uh, capstone season. So Ooh. all of my graduate <laughs> students are going to show off what they've been doing for the last year. Oh uh, so Best we'll of luck. <laughs> I really want all the capstones to be beautiful and amazing and fantastic and uh-huh. that no fires at all to put out and everybody is happy and graduating. So that's my hope. All right. I'm wishing you all the luck on that. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful, yeah, it's night. Have a wonderful night. Good night. If you'd like to keep up with what Mika is doing, you can find her information in the description of this episode. 
A huge thank you to the podcast's Patreon supporters and our amazing audio engineer, Lewis from Fieldstone Studios. Without them, this wouldn't be possible. See you next time.